ตนาเสยลสนิจังบทเทียมจายินอจัตตารอธรรมียวัตท่านเดชอายุวันนอสุขังเกิดเดิม What has happened in Cambodia and why the reason that we Cambodians are here? ยังเป็นบ้านมาตินี่ในยังจังมาตีคือกัดกาได้ที่เอายังมาไป The ringing sound you just heard at the beginning was a Tibetan singing bowl, which has a special spiritual significance in the Buddhist tradition of calling the soul to a place of meditation and healing. This was then followed by the chanting of Buddhist monks who called upon the souls of lost loved ones. In this vigil ceremony, Cambodian Americans are gathered around a wall with pillars that contain the names of countless family members and friends whom they have lost. They bear testimony to what they lost in their homeland and why they left Cambodia to come to the United States. As was said in Khmer, the native language of Cambodians. We didn't choose to leave; believing chose us. Every April 17th, Cambodians around the world commemorate the Day of Remembrance, a day when one of the most brutal and inhuman regimes in history took over the Southeast Asian country and inflicted a reign of terror that would kill between two and three million Cambodians in only four years. This was more than a quarter of the entire population that perished. April 17th is the day of Khmer Rouge, and the beginning of the Cambodian genocide. Welcome to Testimony, a place where we remember the past to give meaning to the present and educate for the future. My name is Sean, and I'm your host for this podcast. You just heard some sound bites from the Cambodian Day of Remembrance vigil service held on April 17th at the Killing Fields Memorial Wall. This memorial is part of the National Cambodian Heritage Museum, which itself is uh, housed inside the Cambodian Association of Illinois, located on West Lawrence Avenue on by the North Branch of the Chicago River. This memorial was completed in 2004. And as of 2018, it remains the first and only memorial inside the United States dedicated specifically to the victims of the Cambodian genocide. The building it's housed in, in between the Ravenswood and Albany Park neighborhoods, is a central space for the small yet active Cambodian community in the Greater Chicago area. They provide various social services for Cambodian immigrants and refugees. As well as educational programming for children and adults, they also provide healing classes, music lessons. They encourage the continuance of Khmer culture as new generations begin to grow up in America. The association and the museum staff alike partner together, uh, and they really provide a fundamental link uh, between the old country and the new. I actually hadn't heard of the National Cambodian Heritage Museum before I started my research, and it was honestly surprising to find that it was the only one of its kind—not just in the U.S., but the only memorial museum uh, outside of Cambodia. 
In the entire state of Illinois, there are only some five to 6,000 Cambodian Americans, and about half of those live in Chicago proper. But despite that small size, there's a wealth of activity and meaning within this community at this particular site. I was fortunate to have the opportunity to connect with some of the staff at the Cambodian Heritage Museum, some of whom were behind the design and construction of the Killing Fields Memorial Wall. So this episode is going to be slightly different than my previous one. Rather than feature an interview with a museum staff person, I'm going to integrate parts of the April 17th memorial service that I had the chance to observe with members of the local Cambodian American community. You'll hear bits of survivor testimony, and you'll also hear my own reactions as an outsider to the memorial space and how it's used in a specific context. Hello, my name is Chun Singh Ha. I am the Cambodian uh, genocide survivor from Cambodia. Two million people um, died because of the starvation, the torture, and also the dissing. April 17, uh, 1975, the Khmer Rouge um, start to um, shut off um, the whole country. They uprooted all the uh, fundamental um, social economic infrastructure. April 17 commemorate uh, during the Khmer Rouge, uh, 1975. I remember during that time, I, I'm only eight years old. So uh, all our family was like uh, asked to leave the home mm -hmm. to the countryside, I believe, yes. So we all left to the countryside, so no one live in the city. I remember that they let everybody to work in the field. So all the adults worked separately from the kids. Uh, during that time, my, my father and my mother already passed away, so I live with my aunt and uncle. So my aunt and uncle, they were separate, work in the field. So I work in the field too, but just work in the, with the rice field. Every time I get out from the field, we are so hungry, mm -hmm. and there's no enough food for us to eat. Mm -hmm. So it, it's very difficult. The second year, because of everybody are starving, I had my youngest sister was very sick. In that time, there is no medical treatment. Mm -hmm. And so in up, she's really sick. She's uh, passed away um, around five years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's just a small example of countless testimonies of Cambodians who survived the Khmer Rouge regime. To just give some basic historical context, Khmer Rouge was a uh, Cambodian Communist Party led by Salat Sar, who's better known to history as Pol Pot. In the aftermath of uh, the U.S.'s withdrawal from the Vietnam War in 1973, the whole region of Southeast Asia, which includes Cambodia, Vietnam, and Laos, um, was in entire uh, political disarray. Uh, in Cambodia, um, there had been a weak uh, U.S.-supported republic under the military leader Lon Nol, um, who then fell 
to the Khmer Rouge in April 1975. Pol Pot declared a new democratic Cambodia. Uh, he promised to create a new agrarian society by getting rid of uh, what was seen as the corruptive influences uh, from the Western world. Uh, and he borrowed a lot of communist ideas from Karl Marx, uh, Vladimir Lenin, and um, most recently at that time, Mao Zedong's um, policies in China. Uh, the country initially welcomed the Khmer Rouge coup, but the regime quickly turned into an absolute nightmare for anyone who wasn't on board with Pol Pot's vision for a utopia of rice farmers. As uh, Sarun and Chun um, both experienced as children, uh, people were forced out of their family homes into collective farming communities. Western culture and medicine was outlawed. All education was banned. Speaking in a foreign language was banned. Religion was outlawed, as well as any type of family bonds. For its four years in power, um, anyone accused of stealing food, having medicine, or really found in any way, shape, or form of disagreeing with um, Khmer Rouge's policies were put into prisons like Tool Slang Detention Center, or just uh, simply executed en masse and dumped into unmarked mass graves. The regime finally came to an end when Vietnam invaded Cambodia in early 1979. In that immediate aftermath, millions of Cambodians who had survived fled as refugees to neighboring countries. A lot of them ended up in neighboring Thailand uh, to the west in the early 1980s. In 1980, the United States Congress passed a Refugee Act that officially allowed for Cambodian refugees to come into the U.S. And within those first five years of the Refugee Act, about uh, 150,000 um, Khmer people immigrated to the U.S. Uh, and as of the, as of the last census in 2010, um, there were about uh, 237,000 people of Khmer descent here in the U.S. And I'm sure that number has, has continued to grow. Uh, the largest diaspora communities have ended up around Long Beach, California, as well as in the area surrounding Boston, Massachusetts. So that gets us to the reasoning behind the location of this memorial in Chicago. I'll let Paul Chorm explain. Paul is a child survivor of the genocide, and he currently serves as director of the museum. Paul is also an architect, and he took part in the team that designed the memorial. Why not the East and why not the West? Because a lot of questions was asked due to the population of Cambodian uh, resettlement. And my plain answer is that, you know, we in the Midwest here are very, very uh, simple minds and we see what sufferings are. And we chose how to rebuild those suffering and the loss. And we neglect of others kind of a problem. So meaning that this is we start to say this is our Cambodian house, and as a second generation TV is here, and me, I'm a survivor, a child survivor, and we see this place as a 
kind of a, a healing space. You know, the, the culture was was burned down to the ground. And this is, we start to revive, bit by bit. The museum and memorial, seen as a place of healing and regeneration, makes this site very different from the official sites of remembrance in, in Cambodia itself, uh, such as, for example, the Tool Slaying Prison or Cheung Ek Killing Fields. At those sites, the repressive memory of Khmer Rouge is still very visceral at these actual sites of atrocity, and the government in Cambodia also places parameters around what type of narrative is told at these sites, especially given the fact that some contemporary government officials also were Khmer Rouge party members back in the day. Here in Illinois, on the other hand, the memory of the Cambodian genocide focuses more on that survivor diaspora experience. It's a more inclusive narrative because the story continues on to the next generation rather than simply ending at the site of the killing fields. The memorial itself is housed inside a multi-purpose building instead of a standalone structure, which really opens up the building to more varied uses. At the same time, uh, the memorial itself is separated from the main gallery of the museum by a curved wall. And this gives visitors, especially those um, within the Cambodian community, gives visitors the choice of whether or not they want to enter um, into um, what's seen as the most sacred part of the, of the museum. Every year, this is our tradition now, and this is the um, uh, memorial. What you're hearing now is from the end of the Day of Remembrance event on April 17th. Uh, each attendee um, was given a visual candle and walked together behind the wall together around the memorial. Um, and this memorial contains uh, a series of glass pillars or panels, each of which contain about 250 names of victims written in Khmer uh, script. At the center of the memorial wall uh, stood seven lit candles, uh, which was almost reminiscent of a Jewish menorah. Below the candles was a stone incense burner in the shape of a lotus flower. Now, lotus flowers are very common symbols in both Hinduism as well as Buddhism, and they serve as uh, symbols of beauty and serenity, overcoming the murky waters of uh, life. The lotus motif uh, can also be seen engraved above on a central stone slab with a text in English that reads, we continue our journey with compassion, understanding, and wisdom. Below the slab and behind the seven candles lies an urn, which Paul describes right here. Um, and the urn here is donated by our beloved uh, staff of the association, Lukru Suti, Mr. Suti, he's the one who donated the urns, and uh, in this urn, um, composed of uh, the uh, earth and the water, the sacred water from the Kulain and the, the, uh, the land uh, from uh, Posat, uh, which is one of the, from the tomb, one of the heroes in, in, of Cambodia. So, the seven candles, this is a new idea by Lukukumpa. So he envisioned about how do we look into the suffering and the healing process. 
and he came up with the seven candle. The seven candle meaning that within that seven day, the suffering is there, you know, from Sunday to Monday. So people are dying, killing, you can name it. And this room is the testament to that. With the name, the collection of all within the US, France, Canada, Germany, and Tulsline. And we are painstaking in designing this process about three months to do the text, you know, computerize, how to make it work, and the design. So, for the love of what we have lost. So I just want us to reflect on that. Before this day of remembrance vigil service, I had learned from Paul that the urn was actually not part of the original design. Um, you see, there's a Buddhist statue that stands outside the wall separating the memorial from the rest of the museum. And, and this Buddhist statue was originally going to be placed where the urn currently sits. Um, the original inclusion of the Buddha statue inside the memorial was actually controversial, uh, a little bit to my surprise. And this was largely over the issue of who would be included or excluded from the memorial space. You see, the majority of Cambodians are Buddhists. And Buddhist monks, also numbered among the specific groups targeted by Khmer Rouge, were being seen as a, quote, parasite to society. So in this sense, it would make sense for Buddhist iconography to uh, stand uh, for resilience against repression. But Paul also wanted to make sure that even the small minorities of Muslim, Hindu, and Christian Cambodians would also be included in the memorial's design. Um, hence, the uh, urn was placed in lieu of the Buddha statue. Now, since the urn contains water from the Kulain Mountain, as Paul described, um, being the, the birthplace of the ancient Khmer Empire, and earth from the tomb of Kling Mung, uh, a Cambodian patriotic hero from the 1400s, it almost seems that uh, a nationalistic memory actually provides a more inclusive space for Cambodian genocide survivors and their descendants to participate. Of course, the actual use of the space during that visual service definitely reflected a Buddhist cultural tradition with the presence of the monks and the use of the singing bowl that you heard at the intro. Ignite the bowl to call the soul to come out today that we are thinking of them. So we call the soul first? Yes. The singing bowl actually reminded me of the themes of silence and absence that we touched on uh, in my previous episode at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. It seems a little counterintuitive, but the ringing of the singing bowl has a silencing effect on everything else present in that space, drawing the mind to a state of contemplation of the silence left behind by those who were killed. Hearing the singing bowl actually creates a sort of filling sensation, which then is contrasted with the sense of absence it evokes as soon as the bowl stops ringing. 
And as an outsider to the community at this event, I found this particular moment in the visual service to be the most powerful. Outside of these material aspects that have a direct cultural and religious link, the inscription of victims' names on the glass panels is what I would consider a more transcultural display of memory. And this transcultural display situates the memory of those lost in the old country into a new American context that can then be approached and understood both by Cambodians and Cambodian Americans who haven't yet visited Cambodia, as well as those outside the Cambodian American community. Again, I would place these name inscriptions in the, in the same genre of memory as the first names of victims at the Illinois Holocaust Museum's memorial or the names at the 9-11 memorial. This notion of transculturalism in memory also brings to light the ambiguities that new generations of Cambodian Americans have to face as they navigate that tension between their ethnic Cambodian heritage and integrating in an American culture. Prior to the vigil portion of the Day of Remembrance event, um, one of the speakers uh, named Tavi, uh, who is a Generation Z uh, Cambodian American, who's the daughter of genocide survivors, shared her thoughts um, with those who attended. I try my best to understand and have empathy for others that have gone through um, certain experiences, such as the genocide, or such as um, um, being a refugee. And all in all, I, I, I do want to get to know more, but it's a, it's a sense of matter that, you know, if you're not there, if you haven't experienced it firsthand, you're never going to know what it's like. So me accepting my culture is one aspect on me trying to get closer on, you know, understanding what it's like to be Cambodian. And on the flip side, also understanding mass culture and popular culture and understanding about what it means to be American culture, because like um, what Dr. said, like, you know, what does it mean to be American, essentially? You know, we are so racially ambiguous in America that there's not one culture that we can accept. And I think that bringing in different cultures and assimilating different cultures, such as the Cambodian culture, the Pakistani culture, um, you know, Mexican, Mexican culture, Caucasian culture, like it's, it's so broad that when you talk about balancing between the two, it's hard to choose. Like for me personally, I feel like it's very hard to choose either being American or Cambodian. So I'm on that in-between line, that racially ambiguous or, you know, racially American, I guess. As someone like Tebby, born in the United States, navigates an identity between her family's Cambodian past and her own present American life, the survivor generation, such as the case with Paul, see in Tebby's generation hope for the future. These were some of the words that Paul concluded the visual ceremony with. Well, may the strength of those, you know, and uh, bless the one that's still alive and guide us to the middle path and the right way. And hopefully, you know, our life um, is brighter and uh, the mystery may fade away and may our homeland, motherland, see the light. Uh, since now it's like um, a little bit of dark, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> so. May our soul, the soul of the, the one beloved one, look back and give us strength to move forward 
in our journey, as the word is saying there, you know, we continue our journey with compassion, understanding, and wisdom. So we have to to have compassion, but understand and the wisdom. Those Cambodian, I think, because of lack of that, that's why we are plunged into that deep hole. So they uh, be the next generation to come, you know, make your future brighter and lead us, you know, because I I fully understand that I came from a family that. You know, my mom, I teach her how to read, how to, to, to read and write. And she know how to chant after that. So because our ignorance, that's why we are here. So now we see the light and we have to push that, use that light to sway away those ignorance. So thank you for coming today. And I hope you uh, safe home and, um, you know, be strong. And this is the land of the free, and we speak our mind. Nothing can stop us. Thank you. There's, of course, so much more that we can get into with the other testimony shared during this April 17th Day of Remembrance. But I think Paul's words sum up things pretty well. This is by no means a final word, and as the Cambodian diaspora community's reflection of this trauma will continue to evolve, uh, as with any other form of memory. Uh, but unlike the case of the Holocaust uh, memory, survivors of the Cambodian genocide will continue to be with us, thankfully, for hopefully several more decades, which gives more time for the next generations of Cambodian Americans, as well as the outside community, to talk about how to pass down this memory in a way that both preserves the distinctive Cambodian cultural traditions and encourage a transcultural understanding of this story. The Chicago-based memorial site demonstrates well that a community doesn't have to have the largest numbers to become leaders in a larger network. Certainly, I hope that the Cambodian diaspora communities on the East Coast and the West Coast will follow the leadership of the Cambodian Association of Illinois to create more centers of education and bring this too often forgotten story to light. If you want to visit the National Cambodian Heritage Museum, the museum is open regularly to any and all visitors by appointment. You can check out the museum's website at www.cambodianmuseum.org to set up personal and group tours of the museum and memorial led by a member of the Cambodian community, which I think brings a very personal character to the story of Cambodians' journeys to America. And that concludes this episode of Testimony. Royalty-free music is provided by Les Hayden in Vortex. This podcast has been produced and edited by Sean Jacobson. Audio recording equipment is courtesy of Loyola University's Digital Media Lab. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. If you'd like to send feedback and continue the conversation, I would love to hear from you. You can message me on Twitter at handlebar Sean, S-E-A-N-T, Jacobson. Or you can email me at sjacobson1 at luc.edu. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of Testimony. Thank you.